Welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast, your monthly source for conversations and curated content to improve your law practice with your host, Rocky Deer. Hello and welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast. This is Rocky Deer and you know, I am having so much fun. You know why I'm having fun? It's because I get to be at the 2018 State Bar of Texas Annual Meeting in Houston, Texas. So, you know, I'm from Dallas. This gets me out of the house, and it gets me meeting with some fascinating people. And I'm going to get to introduce one of those fascinating people to you here today. We've got Craig Ball. Craig is, he's literally a master of all trades, because he's actually a special master on computer forensics. He's been hired as a computer forensics examiner in cases. He's also an expert in electronic discovery and electronic evidence. He's quite the whiz kid. Thank you, Rocky. So, Craig, thank you for being here. It's a pleasure to be here. This, I'm home. I uh, spent most of my life in Houston. I went to undergraduate school at Rice University, raised my family here, and I, I'm gonna break the code of silence right now, Rocky. You are fortunate to be in the best restaurant town in the entire United States. I don't usually like to tell people this, but Houston has more locally owned, wonderful restaurants than New York City and San Francisco put together. So welcome to my hometown. Wow. Now see, as a Dallas guy, there's that whole Dallas-Houston rivalry, right? So it's kind of, Dallas people think they've got the best and Houston people think they have the best. And I don't think the two will ever come to agreement on either one of those. Well, what can I say? I've lived here on and off 36 years, and I can tell you that Houston is the greatest place to live, raise a family, earn a living. It's just not a great place to visit. There's no there there for tourists. But if you want to live a fine life at a low cost, Houston is the one. I don't know that, you know, I think the Children's Museum here in Houston is fantastic for little kids. You've got the aquarium. There's some great places to come in this town. Oh, and I believe there may even be some sports franchises nearby. Just a couple. Yes. Yeah, a few. But I, I mean, sure, there are things to do. And if you have the good fortune to be shown Houston by someone who loves it, you're going to see a great Houston. It's just one of those things where people who come through Houston, they have the bad luck to be here in July or August, don't see the city that I, I love and revere. Now, mind you, I live in New Orleans now. now you, yeah, now you're living... Now you're living in a very fun place. I, I love where I live. I'm very fortunate. Little known fact, New Orleans is the uh, legal technology center of the United States. I, I'm, I'm a, as I look at, you know, the guests on Legal Talk Network, it seems like there is a huge coalescing of talent down in New Orleans, myself not included. Now, is this is it officially the, the legal tech capital of the United States, or is this your observation that is then turned into a hypothesis? You mean there would be a difference between my observation and fact? Um, I dub it so. I'm, I'm making the sign right now. Yeah, he's, 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 doing the, he's doing the whole cross with the hands thing. So I think he's just blessed himself. You did it kind of backwards. So I think you blessed yourself. I'm, I'm sorry. This is the best did, an atheist can do. I, 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 think that's, I think you did that on purpose. All right. So, Craig, let's, let's talk for a second about computers and phones that's, and electronic evidence. And, now we're getting into my religion. Well, yeah, we, we're getting into your area. So here's something that... I've often wondered about, and I think, I would say I'm probably not alone on this. If you're a lawyer and you're dealing with, you're dealing with trying to, the preservation of evidence, either for your side or trying to make sure the other side is preserved, what do you do about these devices? I mean, the, the iPads and the tablets and the phones, because 
you know, so often we talk about preserving evidence in computers, but what happens on the device side of it? Great question. But let's start by asking the question, why would you possibly want to waste your time and money preserving a phone? Who's using these phones today? Oh, wait a second. Pardon me. What am I thinking? Everyone, all day, every day. It's the single thing we are most unlikely to be separated from in our lives, and they are instrumenting us by sensors in so many ways. So first, let's talk, if, you, if I may, I don't mean to co-opt your question. because I mean, I guess one. if you want to, you want uh, to talk, go my ahead. Okay. I mean, oh, wait, never mind. It was your show. Hey. Sorry. Hey. Um, so the first thing is, let's take a look at how these phones have infiltrated our lives and have become, if you will, virtual bards writing down, following us, acting as silent witnesses to not only what we do and where we go, but essentially what we think and, and, what, and so forth. So, you know, the average user of a phone is using a phone for just under four hours a day, and that's average. So if you're one of those people who says, I'm normal, I'm only going to use a phone for two hours a day, well, then somebody else has got to be using it for, for eight or six. So right away, we have this level of usage. We have people going to their phones roughly 47 times a day uh, in terms of active sessions, and that's only the ones where they've put in their, their code, their, mm-hmm. their credentials. Um, You're going to have double that if you start looking at interactions with just the screen. So what I'm trying to say is that our estimate of how dependent we are on these phones is often far less than the reality. Um, We are interacting by gesture with phones per day. On average, about 1,600 times per day, each of us touches, taps, swipes, the phone screen. I've made gestures at my phone before, but that's because it wasn't doing what I wanted it to do. <laughs> so I, what I'm really trying to say here is we are interacting with these things so much. I love to, when I go to New York, I'll, I'll go down to oh, Chelsea and, and down the West Village and I'll sit on, on a cafe and I'll watch the people go by walking home from uptown work. And almost half of them, if not more than half of them, are on their phones constantly while they're walking. So the level of interaction is high. I sit at an intersection of two stop signs at my home in New Orleans, and so I'll have my coffee in the morning and I'll watch the commuters coming through, and I will see how many of them are on their phones texting while they drive, to the point that throughout America, texting while driving has eclipsed both driving while impaired by alcohol or drugs and speeding as the leading cause of collisions. The number one reason you're going to go to an emergency room if you're ages 16 through 24 is you've walked into a fixed object while you were using your phone. So we are dealing with something that is parts of our body. We have no precedent for it in legal history, certainly, in terms of something that is recording all that we do, where we go, and what we think. As a consequence of that, it's evidence. And it has become of critical importance that we preserve that evidence because these devices contain unique, non-duplicative, probative and relevant evidence in a great many cases. So what types? What types of evidence are we creating on these devices? Well, it sort of depends upon the kind of case. We can start with something as simple as geolocation data. Okay. By law, your phone is always recording where you are even if you've disabled its geolocation features. Oh, so, so dis- if I say don't track my location, it's still tracking my location. That's because by federal law, for now the last six plus years, your phone to be sold in America must track your, your location and report it any time it is capable of being used as a phone. 
So it doesn't matter if it's a smartphone or if it's a flip phone from like 1998, it's still going to track you. Well, I'm, I was talking about within the last six years, but the, the level of resolution will change. An old flip phone will have the resolution you would get by a cellular tower triangulation mm -hmm. signal. Gotcha. So you'd get in the neighborhood. Okay. You might get a little closer than that. Sure. But your smartphone has GPS geolocation, and by law, it has to resolve your location to a distance of no greater than 10 meters, or about roughly 30 feet. So hmm. our phones know that we're sitting at this table together. Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? You know, we can talk about it from a moral standpoint. I think it's a thing thing. I think it's an integral part of life that isn't going to go away. I don't so see anybody there. using their smartphones less often or buying less sophisticated phones with less, fewer features and capabilities. So I think it's overall been a good thing. I mean, if you start looking at what mobile has enabled for us, there's a reason why we're looking at those phones all the time. It's because they contain content that is irresistible to us. Sure. I mean, whole industries could not exist without mobile. I mean, we couldn't look for a Yelp. What would be the point? An Uber, a Lyft, we could go on. I wouldn't know what your dessert looked like. At dinner, so important. Without, I mean, so without important. me checking I mean, my social gosh, media. How are you going to know that I had cornflakes for breakfast unless I have blogged about it? Really? And my day wouldn't be complete unless I'd known that. It's, it's very kind of you to say so. I'd long suspected that, Rocky, but it's very kind to have that confirmed. Do you add sugar to your cornflakes or you eat it straight up? Oh, absolutely. No, I'm working on my diabetic coma. I always add sugar to my cornflakes. Oh, corn good, flakes. good. I add sugar to frosted flakes sometimes. It's pretty... There, there's help. There's you, you, help. You, have, you have not lived. <laughs> that explains why you're so upbeat, yeah. I guess. You've not lived, nor have you come as close to death as you do when you put sugar on cornflakes. <laughs> We've digressed a tad. We do that often, don't we? <laughs> so where were we? We were talking about preserving right. smartphones. Sure. Okay, smartphone. We talked about geolocation, applications, health. Your phone, it knows where you are. It knows how high you are. And I'm talking about, not talking about California high. I'm talking about, <laughs> it, it, although it probably is. Maybe a Rocky have, Mountain high. There yeah. you go. So a Rocky high. That's a signal to Lawrence over there. Rockies, hi, Lawrence. Okay, so I've totally lost it. We've got these devices that are instrumenting our bodies, sure. our actions. You know, more than two-thirds, right at two-thirds of all email today goes through phones. Right. And because it goes through phones, it's changed the character of email. Because if you respond to an email through a phone, that response is going to be only a third the length on average, as you would if you made the same response through a desktop or laptop. Because people don't have the, the thumb energy to sit there and tap out a lengthy response just using their phone, is I'm, that why? I, I think so. I, okay. I've seen the studies, I'm not sure I've seen the analysis to the point of why, but obviously we can speak in hieroglyphics, we have emoticons and emoji. Right. So we can save a lot of words by just sharing a steaming pile of poop as our emoji to, to share our deeply held sentiments. We also have a tendency to use a great deal more initializations and shorthand. But I think it's simply what you're pointing out, which is the nature of the medium, the nature of the screen, and the way we interact by thumb typing mm -hmm. all augurs in favor of much shorter responses. And as a consequence of that, we have less text and when you have less text, you have less text to use in advanced analytical tools, less text to provide context for electronic discovery. And as a consequence of this, we are seeing a change that is a move away from email, both in terms of the quantities of emails that are discoverable evidence, and, and to the extent that we're seeing double-digit reductions 
in the instances of email on an annualized basis offset by double-digit gains in the use of text. Okay. So we have not only is the, is the email text becoming shorter and somewhat less relevant, less revealing, but at the same time, you're having this explosion in text. And, and the, the bottom line for that is, is what I call the streetlight effect. I didn't coin the phrase, but what it means, Rocky, is that we are getting much better tools to look in the wrong place, the wrong evidence. Interesting. Okay. So, in other words, I guess if, if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly, we're, we're using our, our discovery and preservation tools to preserve emails when really that may not be where the key information is. It might be either in a text message or in something like a Skype chat or on a WhatsApp platform or a Viber platform, something where people are messaging back and forth instantaneously as opposed to through email. Instantaneously, collaboratively. Our phones have become our primary conduit from communication, in particularly non-voice communication. And importantly, unlike an email, for example, where the information that is in the email is that which someone is volitionally, intentionally placed in the message, our phones are independently recording information about our steps, our movements, all kinds of abilities that we give. Remember, think of the number of sensors and communication devices. Your phone has three independent radio systems in it. Your phone has a barometer. It's got uh, a gyroscope. It's got an altimeter. It's, it's got light detectors, touch detectors, biometric sensors. I mean, the phones are amazing technologies. They've transformed us in so many ways, not all of them positive, And they have also become, in my opinion, the primary conduit and often the most significant repository for revealing electronic evidence. Now, this is news to lawyers in the civil world. It's not at all news to law enforcement. Law sure. enforcement goes to the phone first now with, for, because that's where the richest evidence is. Unfortunately, my colleagues in civil litigation have been very slow, almost obstinate, to try to avoid dealing with phones. And so what I've been doing the last year or so is trying, in my small way, to change their minds to show them not only our phone's essential evidence, that should be our first line of attack in electronic discovery in many instances, but importantly that there are low-cost, scalable, and reliable methods, defensible methods, by which we can preserve and acquire phone data that are um, the kind of thing where we don't have to bring in someone like me, a computer forensic examiner, but that we can have it done in a trustworthy and defensible way by our clients and others who we should be looking to, to take straightforward steps on a routine basis to put this data on hold when it's subject to a legal preservation duty. So I guess two parts to my next question. First is, what is it that we're preserving exactly? I mean, what are we concerned about preserving, say, that might be different from a laptop or a desktop computer when you're dealing with these devices? And then number two, if you're the attorney asking for information, if you're writing the subpoena, you're writing the discovery request, then are, are there key words or key phrases that the civil lawyers aren't aware of that they need to be including in their discovery requests? Well, I, I think you want to be specific with regard to devices. I'm, usually I would say something different. I, I would say don't focus on the devices, focus on the content. Okay. We're, we're at a, an inflection point with these devices where they have been ignored for so long as a consequence of a big lie. And that big lie is there's nothing on these phones that we won't get from the sources that we're already collecting. And that Got is it. 
a huge lot. Okay. So what we need is for lawyers to make clear their intention that they are looking for preservation of mobile devices. Okay. And to force that process. Okay. One of the ways I'm advocating it be done is by providing language, exemplar notices, for example, that can be served upon your own client for purposes of walking them through a low-cost, quick preservation, but more importantly, remove the argument of burden and cost from your opponent. Hmm. Right now, if you go to an opponent and you say, we want you to preserve content on a phone, unless it's manifestly clear to them that the phone holds evidence, you're likely to get pushback. And I think that that pushback had some justification in years past when you had to hire an expert to do it. But today we've gotten to a point where ironically, the efforts to lock down the phones, to secure them that we saw exemplified, for example, when the San Bernardino terrorists Mm -hmm. were being investigated by the FBI and the fight, the scuffle between Apple and the FBI ensued based upon the FBI's efforts to get Apple to defeat certain cybersecurity features. Now, the fact is that today, unlike a few years back, these devices are becoming quite secure. And with every new release, the latest release, I think is 11.4, it becomes much, much harder for forensic examiners to get to deleted data, to get to forensically significant data. Mm. And my point is that we need to be looking at this with the eyes of an e-discovery practitioner, the eyes of a lawyer. In the run-of-the-mill e-discovery case, it's not a forensic investigation, okay? You're, you're not hiring a forensicist in every case involving electronic evidence. And that should be the case with regard to these phones. Now, I don't wish to take any bread out of my mouth and certainly not out of the mouths of my colleagues in terms of being hired as an expert when that's appropriate. Mm-hmm. But I believe that most preservation, Rocky, in e-discovery occurs without the subsequent need to process the data. We have to hold on to a lot more than we actually have to deal with as the litigation does or does not go forward. So if you have a way to preserve the data and it's low cost and most importantly of all, above all other factors, that the user of the phone doesn't need to surrender possession of the phone. Mm. The fearsome loss of the phone triggers a lot of bad behavior. I've seen situations where when required to surrender their phone for imaging, a large number of people will claim that the reason their phone was wiped when they turned it in was that they were trying to put in their password. They failed 10 times and the phone wiped. Oh, gee, I'm really sorry. Well, we know what that's about. Right. And I've seen people say, quite rightly, you can't take my phone. That's the only way my kid's school can get in touch with me. That's the only way I can contact all the people in my lives. Nobody remembers phone numbers anymore. Nobody remembers email addresses. Nobody remembers how to text. It's all in the phone. You take someone's phone away, you have lobotomized them in terms of modern life. So I get why they don't want to let it go. The methodologies I've been promoting that are free, so nobody makes money off of them, are such that you don't have to let go of your phone. Can you give us an example or two? Well, I mean, one of the methodologies involves using for iPhones, using iTunes in a way that creates a 
Oh, is it the backup feature? The backup feature of iTunes is a good example. You couple that with a couple of other tweaks that I've added to the methodology to ensure that there is no reasonable means by which the individual could later alter the information or revise or selectively delete. It's a way to lock that data down and prevent it from being tinkered with later. The beauty of this method is it has a human factors side of it. If you are going to allow a client or an employee to retain the backup and they're not surrendering the phone to a stranger, that they remain in a sense in control Mm -hmm. of this process, they are much less likely to be triggered to do the kinds of things that complicate lawsuits like delete information, commit spoliation, because they are not being forced to part with the device and because they will remain custodian of the data. That is an empowering thing. This is does that sort of trust everybody but cut the cards. And by that I mean it allows the custodian to remain custodian, but it changes the form of the data and takes a, basically a snapshot of the data and then puts it in a form where the custodian can't go back functionally and change it. Not and without somebody knowing about it. Not right. without somebody knowing about it. or um, it, It's actually a very difficult practical impossibility to restore that data to the appropriate name and metadata. So uh, the methodology I outline provides for compressing the data set. The data set name is a hash value, a digital fingerprint, and you provide the lawyer the name of the file and the size and metadata values of the file. It's just a little bit of information. But having that information means that the attorney can be assured that it's safe to leave the data with the client. Bad things can still happen. People are people. Sure. But the likelihood of that happening is so significantly reduced that it remains a reasonable and prudent way by which to ask individuals to preserve their phones, except in those fairly rare occasions where you would be leaving the fox to guard the hen house, as Mm -hmm. we say, where someone who cannot be trusted is left in charge of their own preservation. That kind of so-called custodial-directed preservation is fraught. But what I'm talking about guards against it, because quite frankly, the way this is structured, by the time the individual might start thinking about wanting to destroy the evidence, when it is later demanded to be turned over for analysis, it's already so gelled, if you will, so protected, that you've cut them off from any simple ways to destroy evidence or alter evidence. Wow, okay. Well, there's obviously a lot to this topic. I mean, we could talk for a long time. For example, I'd want to know even about watches, like say an Apple Watch. Is there data in there that would need to be preserved? Well, yes and no. I I mean, yes, there is some data that can be preserved on an Apple Watch, but an Apple Watch is a little different. It's designed to work in conjunction with the phone. Okay, so it's kind of mirroring to some extent the phone. Right, and that's what's changing about electronic discovery in, in many instances. Emblematic of this was a case a couple of years ago in Arkansas where the police came into the scene of a murder and grabbed the Amazon Echo, the Alexa device. All right. Their thinking was the stuff that we might want is stored in the Alexa device, in the Echo. In point of fact, the information they were likely to want is transferred by the the device into the cloud, into AWS, uh, Amazon Web Services. And so what's changing is 
whether something is a sensor or it's a repository. And with an Apple Watch is sort of a an offshoot of your phone. It works in close conjunction with your phone. So I'm more likely to go to the Apple Watch app on a phone to gather information than that I am to try to pull the information off the phone itself. And we're going to see that with the Internet of Things. I'm less likely to go to my Nest thermostat and much more likely to go to the Nest application, wow. which is acting as an aggregator of information from these devices. So we're going to be going more to the phone, the tablet, and the cloud than to the individual sensor-enabled devices in the Internet of Things. Wow. Craig, I got to thank you. This was an eye-opener. I think I, I'd certainly learned something, and I, I think anybody listening to this podcast will have either learned something or have possibly at least learned to ask a few more questions, questions that they otherwise may not have asked. So if they do have questions, they have follow-ups, is there a way they can reach you? Sure. I'm available online. Uh, they can go to my website if they'd like to read many of the articles that I've written on these topics. It's craigball.com, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-L-L.com. Or I hope they might stop by and read my blog, which is called ballinyourcourt.com. <laughs> Very I'm, clever. I, I'm a special master. I get appointed I, yeah, to serve. Yeah, I was going to say, so. this is what happens when you're, when you're a special master. Well, I have to be fair. I, I, really, I need, really need to credit my former editor, Monica Bay, who's creative spark. Uh, we worked together on that. And so I, I'm always reluctant to take credit for Ball in Your Court alone. Although you're, you're enjoying owning it and being able to use it. So it that's is good. my surname. It's your sur <laughs> it is your server. So can people get in touch with you via email or is there a Twitter handle they need to reach out to you on? Or uh, My email is craig at ball.net. So if you get to the internet early enough in life, you can get your own surname as your domain. Ball in your court, ball.net. You've got kind of everything cornered just the way you want it. So, you know, again, Craig, thank you so much for being thank here. Thank you, Rocky. And, you know, I want to thank you for listening and for joining us again for yet another informative podcast here on the State Bar of Texas podcast in conjunction with LegalTalkNetwork.com. So please, if you liked what you heard today, rate us, find us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, on Google Play, on your favorite podcast app, and by all means, learn more about us on LegalTalkNetwork.com. You know, we're learning so much here at the annual meeting here in 2018. If you've not come to one of these, you need to come. You need to come join us and check us out. We'll be here next year as well. But we certainly appreciate you tuning in today. You know, guys, like I always say, life's a journey. I don't want to thank you for tuning in. This is Rocky Deer signing off. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Go to TexasBar.com slash podcasts. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS. Find both the State Bar of Texas and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the State Bar of Texas, Legal Talk Network, or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, or subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.